Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest and greatest episode of Inside the Hexagon. I am your host, Phil Landides, and as we do every other week, this is an interview episode. On this week's episode, I am going to be speaking with Javier Mendez, the founder and proprietor of American Kickboxing Academy, one of the top MMA gyms uh, in the world. I mean, its list of champions is a mile long. Going back to the, the Strike Force days, you know, all the way into the UFC, of course. Uh, I mean, Daniel Cormier, Luke Rockhold, Kane Velasquez, uh, you know, just, I mean, the list goes on and on. I mean, he helped Frank Shamrock kind of recapture his magic in MMA, which we'll discuss. Uh, just, I mean, all the way through the present day, Habib, I mean, just so many guys that Javier and his gym have had uh, an effect on. And He's got a long-standing relationship with Scott Coker. They go all the way back to the early 80s. In fact, Coker was uh, Mendez's early uh, kickboxing promoter. Uh, Javier had a, a fantastic kickboxing career, which we delve into. And then we talk about him transitioning into MMA and then talk about the relationship with Frank, uh, his relationship with some of the other fighters that he's he's mentored and tutored and coached over the years. And, and just an amazing guy that's had a huge impact on the sport of MMA. Uh, so I'm excited to talk to him. Glad to have him on the show today. So with that, let's get to the interview. All right, on the line with us, we've got Javier Mendez, the uh, the founder, the proprietor of American Kickboxing Academy, one of the top MMA gyms in the world. Javier, welcome to Inside the Hexagon. Thanks for having me on, Phil. Long time no talk. Yeah, it's been a long time. I, I appreciate you taking the time to, to reconnect. Um, I, I want to jump right in. I got a lot I want to get to with you, but I want to delve into kind of your background in in, uh, in martial arts. You started training uh, in the late '70s before you got into kickboxing in the mid '80s. Uh, is this when you met Scott Coker? Can you kind of tell us about your relationship with him early on? Uh, I uh, I met uh, Scott Coker in 19, I think I believe 81, uh, when I needed the. I uh, was looking for a change in martial arts or gyms, and uh, I had a friend of mine that I used to train with. He 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 switched gyms and uh, was karate schools, and and uh, he went to a taekwondo. He went from a karate uh, gym to a taekwondo gym, and he said Scott Coker was incredible, and that I should try him out. And uh, I said okay, so I did, and and I found uh, what my friend said was to be correct. That Scott Coker was incredible. So, uh, yeah, I started training with him and, and like, I think 81 or 82. Okay. So, and obviously, I mean, you ended up having a really successful career, world champion kickboxer, won the, uh, the ISKA light cruiserweight championship in 92 before moving up in weight, winning the ISKA light heavyweight championship in 1995. Uh, was Coker your promoter for these fights? Were you, you mostly fighting local or were you fighting all over the place? I fought all over the place, but, but Coker was mostly the promoter for the majority of them. And, and, uh, it was the opposite. I, I went uh, light cruiserweight was, was a heavier division and I moved to my normal division was a light heavyweight in 1995. So, Oh, okay. So you actually moved down. I moved down in weight because oh, I moved down to my, to my actual weight. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, that makes sense. All right. So, uh, you know, kind of look, I, I want to talk about transitioning, uh, you know, kind of getting started with AKA and then kind of transitioning from fighter to trainer. But, you know, obviously a lot of success looking back at your career as a strictly as a fighter. How, how do you feel about that? Do you feel, feel like you accomplished what you wanted to? Um, I feel good about what I've done, you know, but I just, it's always like you always feel that there's still more to do. There's still more to do. And, and, and 
uh, I'm happy with what I've done, but I, I'm not content. You know, I want to do more and I want okay. to create more. I want to help more fighters, uh, not necessarily become champions because not everybody can be a champion, but I want to help more fighters develop into good, good people, you know, and to develop into, uh, you know, just uh, someone that has the, that got a career after fighting. I like that. I like when my fighters have something to rely on versus fighting is all I have. I mean, that really is like to me when I have those guys and I do have them very rare, but I do have them uh, that come through the doors and it really is sad that, that they grab onto and hold on to something that's no longer there. You know, so I like the success stories of the fighters that can, can transfer over to something else and make it successful. Well, you, I mean, obviously you've had a lot of success in training fighters. And I want to talk about transitioning into that. You, you founded American Kickboxing Academy uh, in 1985. You trained a lot of uh, kickboxers and then, you know, other fighters eventually. Uh, but a lot of champions. What, what kind of, what transitioned you from, all right, I'm a kickboxer to I'm going to start training MMA fighters kind of what what was the transition like going beyond just kickboxing into MMA and just transitioning from fighter to trainer yeah well you know eventually I think that I would have got involved in the MMA but but the the, the way it happened here how I got involved in MMA was uh, uh Brian Johnston one of my my uh, first MMA fighters uh he he wanted something to do other than just boxing or kickboxing because you know I was training him and I got him involved in boxing and you know, he, he tearing everybody up, you know, he was being people pretty good and he wanted to get involved in the, in the MMA. So I got involved in the MMA as a result of Brian Johnston, uh, who brought in the, the, my first experience into uh, the UFC uh, when he brought over Paul Polar Bear Varlins into my gym. Mm, and he, okay. so he brought in Paul. Well, I didn't train Paul, but I helped Paul with advice here and there, but I never trained them. But Brian That's a was a big boy, like six, eight, if I remember correctly. Yeah, six eight, six yeah, six seven, six eight, three hundred and fifty pounds. Yeah, yeah, big boy, great guy, big guy, big 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 guy. So anyway, so so Brian brought him into the gym. As a result of that, I got to experience uh, the, my first UFC was the Ultimate Ultimate in Denver, Colorado, where then uh, uh, the Beast uh, uh, Severin won, mm. and uh, it was myself, uh, uh, the Paul Varlin's coach. And, and Brian Johnston that worked uh, Paul Varlin's corner that day. So that's how I got involved in that. As a result uh, of Brian Johnston uh, being in, in, in it, he introduced me to Frank Shamrock. Yeah. And that's how all this started. So a lot of this, uh, me being involved at that stage, was all Brian Johnston. Okay. So he opened that door and, and obviously very well respected within – uh, combat sports, but you mentioned Frank. Uh, he joins AKA in 1997. You end up training your first MMA champion. Uh, you know, the, the Shamrock name, obviously, Ken had had a lot of success at that point. Um, Frank, I, you know, he was, I, we'll, we'll get to his career in just a second, but just at the beginning, what, what, what did it mean having Frank join AKA? Was that a, a big boost or was it more, you know, mutually beneficial at that point? I think it was mutually uh, beneficial at that point. We weren't really full into uh, UFC, MMA type stuff at all, period. You know, he just, you know, help, Frank just helped increase the, the, the tension towards that goal, you know. But we were a martial arts gym, and I was still focusing on kickboxers and boxers because I, I had a very successful uh, kickboxer and boxer uh, program. We, were, we basically 
most of all my fighters that I had, I was in the winning percentage, 95, 98% win percentage of all the people I trained wow. in boxing and kickboxing. So I was doing well there. It's just a matter of more time involved, you know. But uh, when Frank came in, uh, yeah, things changed. Hmm. Well, it, and it's kind of funny because – or it's not funny, but I guess a little bit ironic. Frank had actually lost – four of his previous five fights before he joined AK, he actually had lost three straight. His record was really only a very pedestrian 11, seven and one. So this was not a guy that was looking, you know, on top of the world at all. But once he becomes part of AKA, he goes undefeated in 12 straight fights, including beating Kevin Jackson for the inaugural UFC light heavyweight championship title uh, later in 1997, which, you know, I, I be believe that might've been his first fight under the, the AKA banner, but, uh, what did you see as far as Frank as a fighter goes? I mean, he'd had, you know, he'd fought in Pancrase and had, had had some success, but what did you see as far as what you could do, what AKA could do to take him to the next level? Well, the, the first thing I did uh, when, when Frank came into my gym, I welcomed him with open arms and, and I asked him, I go, Hey, uh, if you want any help, I'm here to help, you know, with striking. If you want, he goes, Oh, really? He goes, yeah. You know, how about I take you up on that? I go, okay. Let me know. I'm here for you. So he goes, yeah, you know what? Let's train. I said, okay. So we trained, and the very first time I trained him, I, I gave him. So I go, where, you know, where's your hand wraps? He goes, what hand wraps? I don't wear hand wraps. <laughs> I go, I go, Frank. I go, you need to wear hand wraps because it's important. He goes, nah, it's okay, Hob. I don't want to wear them. I said, all right, but you know, you should wear them. Well, I don't think he realized, and at that time, that I'm a pretty heavy pad holder. I pad pretty hard, meaning I hit back pretty hard on the pads, which is a no-no because it screwed up my elbows. But anyways, I padded pretty hard. And, and, and so I, I work with him, and I said, he has potential. I said, he's very green in the stand-up, but he has potential. So after the session, he goes to me, he goes, hey, Hob, he goes, um, uh, you think that maybe you can give me some hand wraps? I go, what do you mean, hand wraps? Frank he goes, uh, you know, my, my, my hands kind of hurt a little bit. I go, oh, really? <laughs> he, starts he starts laughing. He goes, yeah. So it started from there. I, I noticed his, uh, his tenacity. I noticed everything. And I said, man, this guy's man, he has it all. He had it all. He had it all. He had it all. And I, and I just helped him developed the mentality and the striking for uh, for for stand-up he trained with maurice smith but during all that time he was training with me maurice smith would get all the credit because mm. no one knew that he was actually training with me so it was all about the alliance and them but but frank yep. never trained over there he trained with me all that time it was me that was making him better and uh, but 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 the alliance would get the credit but it was actually me i'm the one who actually worked with him and uh it, it, it was kind of one of those funny and Maurice Smith's a real good friend of mine. And, and he would laugh because it ain't my fault. <laughs> it ain't my fault. I go, I don't really care. I just care about him when he goes, well, you know, I, I, I don't tell people I train them, but, but it's your fault. And I said, well, no bad. It doesn't matter. It, it just, what matters is he's winning. Yeah. It's kind of funny you bring that up. Cause I, I honestly, as I was re researching through this, I was kind of, a, I was under the impression too, that it was Maurice. It was the Alliance as you, you know, as it was called that that was really, you know, Frank's thing. I, I honestly, until I delved into this research, I didn't even realize that he had been such a big, I knew that there was an association with AK, but I didn't realize that you were his main trainer that really turned it around for him. So I, I I'm glad you talked more to that because that's, that's one of the things I wanted to ask you about. Um, but, but as you, you know, obviously as Frank sees success, starts winning titles, you know, has the big fight with Tito and, and all that stuff, I'm sure that starts to open the doors and there starts to be even more of a spotlight 
on AKA, but Scott Coker through this time has been pushing for MMA to be legalized in the state of California uh, for quite some time. There'd been some stops and starts, including in the late in, I think it was like 99 and then 2001 and, and all of that. And it just, you know, took time and all the bureaucratic red tape and all that garbage that it took for a lot of time for that to clear up from your side. When did you start hearing about, you know, strike force shamrock versus Gracie, you know, obviously strike force had been a kickboxing promotion. I'm sure you'd had fighters that have been involved in that, but um, when, when did you kind of start hearing about oh, yeah, MMA and this, this might actually start to become a reality in, in California? Well, <laughs> how all that started is uh, I used to meet with Scott at Flames Restaurant, and we'd always sit there and talk. And i say, Scott, man, you need to get an M- MMA involved in MMA. And he'd always tell me, man, I don't know anything about MMA. I go, I don't know, but Scott, it's the new wave. I'm telling you, it's the new wave. Everything's turning to MMA. You want to be, you want to get involved in MMA. No, I don't know enough about it. I go, Scott, I got all my guys. We can use all my guys. I know the talent. I can help you. He's still not comfortable with it. No, 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 no. I said, Scott, I'm telling you, you need to turn to MMA. So I would talk to him for a long time about, he needs to switch to MMA. He needs to switch to MMA. But he had no clue about it. Because, you know, he he was uh, here. He, he promoted here. And, and San Jose was his home. And that's where he promoted the majority of the shows. And the SAP Center was it. And this and that. And, and then until California said that it was maybe going to legalize MMA here, that's when, that's when he said, Come on, let's get together, Hob. <laughs> because he wanted to be the very first one to throw a show, and he wanted to, uh, Gracie versus versus Shamrock. That's right. what he wanted, Gracie versus Shamrock. And he wanted my help, Crazy Bob's help. We supplied him with a lot of our fighters, gave him a lot of help on who to get, who not to get. I told him, you need to get Gilbert Melendez because uh, he's a champion in Pancreas. And, well, he's a little guy. It doesn't matter. The guy's a champion. People want to see champions. Get Gilbert Melendez and, and a whole bunch of other people. So we started talking, and he started he started recruiting. He started getting guys. And, and uh, of course, he became the first one that uh, was going to throw the first show. So it was the, the Gracie Shamrock show. And, and uh, at that time, uh, Frank and I had gone our own separate ways. So, so I wasn't involved with Frank whatsoever during that, the, during that time. Okay, which is actually that was going to be one one of my questions uh, was whether or not you'd actually help train him for that fight. I knew that uh, I spoke with with Coker recently. I knew that you'd had involvement. In fact, he told me the story about uh, you guys you guys actually physically putting the cage together right like very very shortly before the event. Was, uh, that sounded like a pretty crazy story. Cowboy Cerrone having to drive and pick up the cage and and all of that stuff. So it sounded like you had a, a really high level of involvement in in not just supplying fighters, but the actual logistics of the event as well. Well, I mean, that, that, that I did very little, but, but, but I did, you know, whatever Scott, I mean, Scott's my guy. So whatever Scott wanted, I was going to do, you know, that's just the way, I mean, my, my relationship with, with him is like that, you know, Scott wants something. If I can do it, I'm doing it. Well, it, it definitely paid dividends on that. I mean, over 18,000, uh, people there. And I, I told Scott, I was at the last uh, kickboxing event. And then I was at the first, MMA event and just to see 18,000 people there show up for that event. I mean, that just, it was an, a, a very special night, very electric, electric crowd. So I want to, I want to move on from, from that event specifically, but before I do, I did just want to ask just being that you were part of it, you helped supply fighters, all that stuff. Looking back at that first event, I mean, how special of a night was it from your perspective? For me, it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't honestly because, you know, it was Scott Coker's show. 
So for me, I never looked at it as a special thing for me. I wasn't a promoter. I was already involved as, 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 a, as a, a trainer, and that was the avenue I wanted to go. So I can't really say it was special for me because I was already busy. I was already traveling the world, you know, with fighters, you know. So uh, for me, it wasn't that special because I wasn't ever a promoter, and my heart was never into promotion. But, but was I very happy for Scott Coker? Absolutely. Absolutely. I was very happy because finally – he got into a, a you know a venue, not a venue, but he got into a, an art that was he can take it to the world level, you know, and uh, people would see what a great promoter he is, and and uh, I believe that's what he did with Strikeforce. Yeah, it's definitely been proven, and I want so now I want to transition to talking about the relationship between AK and Strikeforce. Obviously, you've got a, a close relationship with Coker, but being the the dominant MMA gym in, in the Bay Area, you know, AKA Fires were a very big part of the foundation of Strikeforce, you know, long list of fighters from AKA that fought inside the hexagon, Bobby Southworth, Josh Thompson, Paul Buentello, Mike Kyle, Trevor Prangley, Justin Wilcox, uh, Luke Rockhold, Kung Lee, Daniel Cormier, Kane Velasquez. I mean, the list goes on and on. You got Southworth, Thompson, Cormier, King Mo, Rock, yeah. Yeah, King Mo uh, Cormier, Rockhold, Kung, all holding Strikeforce gold with DC winning the, you know, the heavyweight Grand Prix. How important was Strikeforce as a promotion to the development of, of AKA fighters, kind of giving them, you know, a platform, a high level uh, promotion to be able to develop? Like, but, but how important was that, was the Strikeforce promotion to AKA as a gym and for its fighters? Oh, man, that was extremely important. That, that, that right there really put us on the map. That right there really got us going as, as, as a, a, a gym top gym, you know, and, and from that point when Strikeforce involved my fighters till now, you know, we're regarded as a top gym as a result of the, the, the great benefits you have when you know somebody, you know, so it isn't a lot of the times in the world of how many great fighters you got, it's how many great connections you got too. Cause if you got great connections and you have good fighters, you can create magic. If you don't have good connections and you have good fighters, well, I don't know. Sometimes those opportunities don't come their way. Hmm. Well, it's it, and I would say, you know, I'm, I don't want to speak for Coker, but I, I think it'd be we'd be remiss to say that Strikeforce didn't benefit tremendously um, from from AKA as well. I mean, obviously, they need the fighters to they need the good fighters to be able to to make the promotion and, and make it credible. So you know, it was mutually beneficial, you know, relationship, of course. Oh yeah, of course. I mean, hey, without Crazy Bob Cook, myself, and Frank Shamrock advising him, Scott Coker would have never done it. Yeah, and he get. And he gives you guys credits. I mean, he mentioned, you know, he's mentioned that in, in my, my interview with him and, and he, you know, again, good relationship on for all involved. Um, I, I did want to mention on our, our most recent uh, episode, we covered the, uh, the tank versus Buentello event. I did want to ask you, Paul was, was, I believe training with your, with you at that time. Yeah. Um, did you, did you focus anything kind of looking back at that fight? I mean, it was a big opportunity for Paul. It was his strike force debut. Um, it was, you know, a big stage for him and then fighting a guy, even though, you know, tank as a, as a fighter had obviously seen better days, but still a huge name. Do you, looking back on, on training Paul for that fight, any, anything specific in training that comes to mind? I mean, how do you train for a guy as wild and unorthodox as tank Abbott? Well, you know, during that time, I mean, I never personally worked with Paul Bonatello like on, on striking. I mean, I would give advice. I, I would run the, run the team because uh, I was the head coach. But, but I didn't train every single person that came in my door. I'd kill oh, myself. Of course. So Paul was not one of my chosen guys. Uh, so his, his, his great training would come from sparring, 
sparring with with all the top guys that we had, like Kane and and all those guys. During I think it was Kane was very early in his career at mm -hmm. that time. Paul fought fought him, but he was with us. So so Paul Paul put in some rounds with him. A lot of rounds with Mike Kyle. He put in a lot of rounds with Mike Kyle. Well, it was you know it's funny you bring up Kane because I believe this was the event that Kane made his debut on. He, he fought once. Uh, in Strike Force, and it was a, a his initial fight with a guy named Jesse Fujarchik, and he won yeah. that fight, and then he was kind of went on from there. Let, let's just talk about Kane just for a second here. But Kane coming through the doors, and and you know he had a strong collegiate career and and all of that. But when you saw Kane come in, what did you think? Was this future star, or was this just another <laughs> guy? What, what were your thoughts on Kane? Well, the the story about Kane is this: uh, Dwayne Zinkin, who's the the main guy in the management, he's the one that recruits a lot of these top wrestlers. Right, and, Zinkin Entertainment. Uh, right. Yeah, Zinkin Entertainment. So he said, "Hey, Hob, Hob, I got the greatest guy for you. It's this guy's got the greatest gas tank, and you're gonna love this guy." I said, "Okay, who is he?" Because his name is Kane Velasquez. Oh, okay. What weight? He goes, "Oh, heavyweight." That went. My mind was not interested because I thought a heavyweight. Mexican, I'm thinking, oh, crap, he's probably a big, big, chunky guy, probably not super athletic, you know. That's what I was thinking. So the day he came to pick up uh, Kane at the airport, uh, Crazy Bob Cook's, uh, 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 you know, girl, uh, uh, she says, hey, Hob, do you want to go pick up, you know, your next star? I go, hell no, I got fighters to worry about. I don't know, you go pick him up. So she went and picked him up. Um, Kane walks in through the door. And I was like, I took a double take. I went like, I, I, I looked at the guy. Hey, nice to meet you. In my mind, I'm going, man, this guy looks super athletic. I go, what the hell? And then I said, hey, uh, I go, how much did you weigh? And he goes, oh, I'm 250. So I go, uh, and, and I go, I thought you were, I said, I joking around. I said, I thought you'd be heavier, right? And he goes, yeah, I used to, I used to put on more weight to wrestle, mm. right? But mm. I was laughing because he didn't know what I meant. Right. He looked very athletic right. not what i thought I, I didn't think i was gonna see a super athletic looking you know hispanic guy right and that's what he was and then i, I watched him move around with some of the uh guys we had some of the champion kickboxers we had and uh they were doing light stuff and and uh when the kickboxers kicked him right in the head right full in the head boom as soon as he got kicked in the head came picked him up and gently put him down you know didn't <laughs> slam him gently put him down as soon as he get kicked in the head boom Grabbed him, picked him up, and gently put him down. So then I noticed the next time around, he got kicked again by the same guy. Well, this time around, he grabbed him and he slammed him. I mean, he just went, okay, boom, slammed him. And then the kickboxer didn't want to do nothing after that. So I said, okay, so this guy has control. And I love that. I said, well, that's awesome. Well, the next guy was another heavyweight guy that was a kickboxer, and he kicked him on the head. This is the third time he got kicked. And he just said, in his mind, I know he's going, oh, screw this. So he just, he didn't give him a warning. He just grabbed him and slammed him. And that was it. And then that was, that was it. Not, nothing. He didn't want to do nothing no more. Not Kane, the other guys. <laughs> really, mm. They were very scared because here's this guy just picked him up like nothing and slammed him you know, on the ground. And then, so they're like, oh, shit. You know, <laughs> I don't know what to do. So Crazy Bob Cook goes to me, goes, hey. He goes, let's, let's see Kane. And I said, no, we don't need to see him. I already seen what I need to see. He goes, no, let's squat some spar. I go, I said, no. I go, he's done. I don't need to see no sparring. He's in, right? And then uh, from that point, I went and telling people I got the greatest guy. He's going to be the world champion. I told Scott Coker. I told everybody that I could talk to that we have the next world champion. And uh, the rest is history. He became what we all thought.
But for me, all it took is the discipline he had, the reaction he had when he got kicked full in the face. That told me this guy, this guy had what it took. And I knew right then and there he was going to be a world champion. Well, he's, I, and I got to, I have to ask as a, a pro wrestling fan, I have to ask a follow up question. Any surprise that he's gotten into pro wrestling and has done, you know, I mean, it's obviously hasn't been very long, but, um, you know, is any surprise that he's, he's had the success already that he's had in, in pro wrestling? No, not at all. It, and the, the, that, as soon as this COVID thing's over, he'll be back doing that. It's just that, you know, with the WWE, you know, they have to cut back. Yeah. On things. He was one of the newer guys. So. Right. You can't be one of the newer guys and keep going if you, they need to put work into you. So that that got cut back. So he'll be back, and and he won't be back into MMA from what I know, and I don't think he should. I think he should stay with WWE and movies and other other fun entertainment things because he's a star, you know, and, and he's he's a celebrity and he's made for that kind of thing. He's put in his ten plus years in the fight game, and his body almost didn't hold up with all those surgeries he's had. Right. It's like, man, no, stick to something that you know the outcome and you know what's going to happen. I mean, versus the MMA, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know this. You know, I mean, it's pretty hard to do MMA and stay healthy. You know, it really is. Yeah, when you're going three years in between fights because of surgeries and injuries and all that stuff, I mean, that's just – that's that's no way to do it. You know, you can't, no. you can't it, do that. It stopped him from being the greatest heavyweight of all time injuries. That, that yeah. I, I mean, Joe Rogan still says he's the, you know, the greatest heavyweight he ever saw just the, the injuries and everything. And he still had a fantastic career, obviously. Yeah. He, he still became a two-time world champion. He's still one of the greatest ever, but not the greatest, but it's still one of them, you know, so he's still up there. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, he got his, got his strike, his, uh, his start and strike force. So, um, let, let, let's bring it back to them. I, I want to talk about Kung Lee um, for for a couple minutes. Uh, you know, he wins the Strike Force middleweight title by beating Shamrock. What was it like training Kung to beat your your former? You know, I, I guess some would say your former top guy. But but what, what was it weird kind of training a guy against a guy that you'd had such a, a, an integral, um, you know, such, been such an integral part of of the success he'd had in his career? Uh, well, I'll tell you how it all started. It all started with, I was at uh, a, a chiropractic place on Meridian called score and I was getting worked on there and Kung was getting worked on there by Dr. O. I saw him there and I said, Hey Kung, you know, cause I've known Kung for a while. I used to have Kung spar with Frank a long time ago to get him ready for fights. Kung would come and spar with Frank. So I told Kung, I go, hey, Kung, I go, well, you're considered doing MMA. He goes, no, 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 I can't do that. I go, why? I think you do great. I think you do really, really good in that. He goes, no, nah, no. Nah. And, and he goes, well, if you would help me, I go, sure, I'll help you. I'll help you. And he goes, and, and, and he goes, well, no, no, no. I didn't want you to help me. And I'm like, talking, what do you mean? Help you like, like hold pads for you? He goes, yeah, if you do that for me, I'll do it. And I went, uh, okay, I'll help you. I said, I'll help you with your guy. So, so that's how it all started, you know, with mm-hmm. him getting involved. So, so I started training Kung from the beginning. Uh, of the MMA and, and of course everybody would always ask you know is he ready for Frank and Frank and I were having our, our little disagreements not personally we never physically talked about nothing but we had our own little uh, things here and there you know uh, I love Frank I always loved Frank even back then I loved Frank but there was this became more of a, a business you know mm-hmm. and little by little people start talking about Frank and Kong Frank and Kong and I'm, I'm like no we're not ready for Frank no we're not ready for Frank and I think it was either, either Kung's fifth or sixth win uh, that I said, okay, we're ready, you know, for Kung. So if you guys want to set it up, we're ready. I mean, we're ready for Frank. If you guys want to set it up, we're ready. And uh, uh, getting Kung ready for Frank was, believe it or not, it, it, did, it wasn't a problem at all whatsoever. 
I didn't have a problem at all. Um, the the one and and it it all came like this because originally Frank first fought one of my other guys, Phil Baroni, mm. and, and and when he fought Phil Baroni, um, I told Phil that, that you know because Phil wanted me to train him, and then Phil found out that they kind of wanted to do a story on me because you know I trained Frank and what it's going to take to have the, another person you know uh, uh, train against Frank and Congo and, Kung go, and uh, I'm, I'm sorry and Phil goes hey you know what. He goes, I don't want you to trade me because I don't want people to say the only reason why I beat Frank is because I had you. <laughs> so, so he said, so, so can you not train me? I go, absolutely. I go, I'll do whatever you want. Because, you know, the thing is when a fighter wants to do something, I go with them, whatever they want. Because, it, look, Phil, if they don't want to uh, be b trained by you, don't try to convince them. Let them do their thing. It, right. Because you don't have their attention anyway. So when he, as soon as he said that, that was it. It was done. And I said, okay, not a problem, you know, because – uh, you know, you, you can't help them then. You cannot help them. So uh, I went from there. And then so when the con thing came up with Frank, I was already, okay, let's find it. Because it was just business. Frank and I weren't talking anymore. And so we weren't really friends, friends. I love the guy, but we weren't really friends, friends anymore. So I felt it was fine. I didn't have a problem with it. Was there, I mean, you can choose to answer this however you want, but did you take any sort of special pleasure in you know, I mean, obviously it was a fantastic fight. The Both the Phil and Kung fights with Franks are, are two of my favorite fights. I just, I, they're so entertaining um, to me. But but the Kung one, I mean, it had to feel good on some level to kind of, I don't want to say get revenge, but but it had to feel good on some level. Uh, but, but kind of what were your feelings coming out of that? Uh, I mean, because world champion, you know, and, and, and it felt good because we fought a legend, you know, and, 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 and from that perspective and, uh, the third part was because it was Frank. Yeah, there was something there, but not not as much as I got a world champion and we fought a legend. More more his credentials rather than the person, you know. So um, I didn't I didn't I didn't take uh, like that that kind of like oh yeah you know screw you buddy we got you no 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 it was a business and I treated it as a business. I didn't take that much satisfaction in the fact that him and I were having our, our little tug of war back and forth without really verbally talking to each other, but we had our own little war. Hmm. Well, is you obviously had a tremendous amount of success in strike force. You've continued to have uh, a lot of success in the UFC and other, you know, other promotions across the, the world. But looking back now, what are your thoughts on, on strike force and the promotions place in the history of, of, of MMA? I, I, you know, I think looking back and seeing what Scott Coker uh, created, you know, was such a masterpiece. And I mean, you look at now, you look at all the, all, all the strike force uh, uh, champions and all, all, or all the top contenders. A lot of them became UFC world champions. Mm -hmm. A lot of them. Oh yeah. You know, they transferred over the UFC and Jake Shields, you know, so many. You Rockhold. Know, Rockhold. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so uh, Jacare was one of them. Uh, you know, he had so many, so many, so many guys. You know that they were in strike force that they came over. You know, uh, it, it was just it was just unbelievable the amount of guys that he had. So that just tells you the kind of talent and the kind of recruiting that that Scott was able to do and, and what he was able to build. Had they not sold out, uh, strike force, in my opinion, would in my opinion, would be right now neck to neck with the UFC, in my opinion. Yeah. And there's, and that's something I want to get, you know, I want to get into on the podcast eventually. And, and, you know, you just laid out exactly why we're, 
we're doing this is because I feel like the promotion doesn't get the respect that it should. The people that some people just don't understand that, you know, it might've been the greatest era in MMA history. I mean, you still had pride at the beginning of strike force. And I mean, just so many important fighters that are some that are still champions today that that came through that promotion. And, you know, again, AKA was a, was a big part of that. And a lot of those names, they, they trained in the AK gym. So I, you know, it's, it's an important story to tell, I think. Um, I, I did want to ask, I, you have your own podcast. If I, if I, uh, if I saw that correctly, is there, uh, tell the, tell the listeners about that and anything else that you want to share as far as projects or, or anything like that. Yeah, I have a podcast called Javier Mendez podcast. Uh, I do it with a friend of mine, Len Dempsey. He's the main guy behind that. I just get on there and I help him out and uh, it's my name and everything, but I'm on there, but I'm not on there as much as he is. Uh, I just did something for him per se. It wasn't that I, I'm, I really love doing a podcast. I, 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 I enjoy talking about MMA. I enjoy fan questions, you know, um, and I enjoy telling the truth, you know, and that's one thing I'm known for is, uh, it, 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 I tell it straight, you know, and not too many people are given, going to give it to you straight. You know, they'll give you roundabout things to make themselves look good or bad. I will do whatever the truth is. And if the truth is it's going to make you look bad or me bad, mostly I will do it on me. I won't do it on anybody else because it's not cool to make other people look bad. Not cool at all. So I will be very careful on that. I know when I talk to, about other other fighters and whatnot, I generally don't want to don't want to talk bad about other fighters. Mm. Well, I, I appreciate your candor. Um, you know, obviously, just again, one of the one of the when they look back on the history of MMA as a whole in a hundred years, I mean, AK is going to be one of the gyms they talk about as one of the you know one of the best and put out some of the greatest fighters of all time. Uh, just looking back, one one more question: Do you want to be remembered more for your fighting career or as a trainer? Trainer. Hands down. I was never a great fighter. Hmm. You said you tell the truth. I can't, I, I won't, I won't try to talk you out of that, but I mean, a guy that wins belts, I mean, to me, you get, you had some success, but I, I think it's fair to say, looking back, yeah, your, your history as a trainer, I don't, I don't know how anybody would, would overlook that. So uh, Javier Mendez, head of AKA, we really appreciate your time being on the podcast and uh, hopefully we can talk with you again in the future. Yeah, no problem, Phil. Thanks for having me on, buddy. All right, I want to thank my very special guest, Javier Mendez, for taking the time to join us uh, for today's episode. It was really great reconnecting with him. I haven't talked with him in a long time. Uh, obviously, American Kickboxing Academy, you can find them online. And, if, and of course, you can find uh, Javier online uh, on social media as well. Uh, but again, just delving into his, you know, his past, his relationship with Frank Shamrock, his kickboxing career, his relationship with Scott Coker and all of that was just really awesome. I hope that you enjoyed it. I uh, hope that you're enjoying all these episodes that we're doing and enjoying the show overall. Uh, of course, we want to hear your feedback. You can reach me at phil at insidethehexagon.com. Uh, you can also follow us and interact with us on Twitter and Instagram at insidethehexagonpod. Uh, but, but again, we'd love your feedback. We'd also love for you to rate and review the show. That always helps others uh, find the, the podcast. And so we, we appreciate that as well. Uh, but looking ahead, we've got Strikeforce Triple Threat coming up that features uh, Bobby Southworth versus uh, Vernon Tiger White for the Strikeforce Light Heavyweight title. Also, Josh 
Uh, Thompson's on that card. There's some really interesting fights to discuss there, so that's going to be coming up. Um, we've got some great interviews uh, coming up as well. We're going to be interviewing Bobby Southworth, actually, uh, which I'm looking forward to. We're going to talk about his career, his time in Strike Force. Uh, so that's coming up as well. We've got other fighters lined up. Got a lot of stuff going on, so we appreciate your support, helping us spread the word. Uh, but with that, we're going to go ahead and ride off into the sunset. Hope that you stay safe and that you stay healthy, and we will talk to you again soon. Hi, this is comedian and writer, and let's be honest, I do a lot of things. This is Dean Archipotis, the host of Whiskey Business, the podcast not so much about whiskey as it is one with whiskey. Yes, we drink and talk about whiskey, but we do so much more with so many interesting people. For example, we talk to comedians like Greg Warren. You know, I don't want to brag, but let's just say I can walk into a Red Lobster and get whatever. You know, I think the pause right there is probably more important than the word. Amazing athletes like boxing champion Buster Douglas. When a fighter's down and he's looking for his mouthpiece instead of trying to get up. That's when I knew it was over. Yeah, yeah, right? And, yes, Bigfoot chasers. Do you believe in Bigfoot? And if so, does he really eat beef jerky? <laughs> the Bigfoot thing is people have seen these, and, and I've seen a lot of compelling evidence about it. It's Whiskey Business with Dino Tripotis. Join us for what we call a good conversation with a good pour. You really can't ask for much more than that, can you people? Check us out at whiskeybusinesspod.com, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network.